0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.
0: Next up for lead guitar... (laughs) Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Yuri Campbell for another installment of What Have We Learned, this time focusing on Ted Joya's Birth and Death of the Cool. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll.
2: Doing one of our special installments. What have we learned? Looking back at a past episode with our friend, Dr. Yuri Campbell. Yuri, welcome back.
3: Hey, Nate, how are you doing? It's good to to be part of this again.
2: Well, good. Glad to have you. We're discussing Ted Joya's The Birth and Death of the Cool. And I'm a huge Ted Joya fan. His books always make me think. But this one makes some pretty big statements, some of which I think his analysis – basically the point of the book was the cool, meaning what baby boomers thought was cool. James Dean, Miles Davis, John Lennon, Frank Sinatra, et cetera, is not a timeless concept. Joya was looking to write a book about the whole history of the cool and discovered it had a very brief history, starting, he thought, in the 1920s and kind of dying by the turn of the millennium. What do you think, Yuri? Do you buy the premise? Well, I
3: I, I think this is a really good book to read to sort of provide, you know, uh, individuals who are interested in, in cultural production, et cetera. Uh, with a framework for thinking about how uh, cultural production, group sort of maintenance and and creation uh, occurs over the sort of flow of history, right, over change over time. And so in the sense that this particular iteration of, of group building and cultural production uh, took place in the course of history. Took place in the course of you know change over time. I think it is correct to say that you know the cool as uh, a distinct or at least a, a sort of identifiable uh, instance of, of you know that sort of social practice of building the group and, and building the culture that constitutes the group did take place over a uh, or has taken place over a, a, a definable period of time, and it's not something that's timeless. Uh, but at the same, which might seem invisible to you if you are in the middle of, you know, the era of the cool, it might seem like something that was always there and that would always be there. But I think part of the reason that it, it can be invisible is that there, it it employs, you know, the 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 practice of the cool, the practice of, of culture building, et cetera, employs the things that are sort of timeless, or at least they're they're so deeply embedded in human nature that. Uh, they play out over the course of millennia repeatedly and i think I think when you know in the in the conversation you had with with Ted, he talks about cycling, you know cycling through history, you know these fifty year cycles and hot to cold, hot to cold, right And so in that sense it there is a there is a sort of timeless dynamic to what's going on or at least a a, a dynamic that is hard to see as being specific to a particular era. So I think it's 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 both a correct assessment and it's also it's an assessment that you need to to think about in terms of those kind of timeless human endeavors so that you can really sort of get at the kernel of kind of what's so meaningful about the cool and what might be so meaningful about uh the extinction of the cool
2: i I think that's that's a good way to put it he <clears throat> to me i mean the main revelation was whoa this was a new concept and and i think he's absolutely right about that when you look into the use of the word and and also it it ties in with the use of the word cool to mean what it's meant to us which right. went from oppositional and understated and kind of ironic and elusive people like Big Spiderback or lester young or miles davis who were challenging the dominant culture but not directly they weren't walking up to john wayne in a bar and saying, you know, you can you can take your after the ball and your sidewalks of New York and shove it, buddy. I'm I'm bringing this new ironic detachment. No, they were stepping back and kind of giving it a whatever, dude. But the thing was that it came out of jazz, which was big, and then jazz takes this turn to art music, and the cool is a big part of that. Miles Davis is one of the acolytes of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie in their bebop revolution. He goes on to found the cool school of jazz or West coast jazz among multiple genres of jazz that he found, you know, including modal jazz, fu- jazz fusion, etc. cetera. But then this cool meme moves over onto a new host body and is embodied by actors, James Dean, Paul Newman, And musicians, particularly rock musicians like Elvis Presley, John Lennon, he doesn't talk about Bob Dylan so much as a cool figure, but I see Dylan as sort of a quintessential cool figure behind the sunglasses with the sarcastic remarks and everything else. And then that was so successful, partly because of the size of the baby boom, you know, other factors, but kind of rock music and the baby boom culture conquered the world, and then it got subverted or perverted by marketers and just run into the ground pitching iPods and every kind of doodad and car and jeans, et cetera, et cetera, and just run it into the ground. So in terms of all that, I think he's described a specific phenomenon pretty well. Where I think it gets dodgier is when you try to apply it like who's cool who's not (laughs) (laughs) and what's going to be the post cool and you know he does hedge his bets and it's a sophisticated nuanced argument and he points out that this battle between the cool and the not cool or the pre-cool i guess you could call it other writers call it the sentimental versus the vernacular um you know that that battle went on it you know it wasn't like Miles Davis appeared and everyone in the world surrendered to the cool. There were plenty of people that were not cool and and were doing their thing quite successfully, you know, in the music world. He he singles out the singer-songwriters as the right. antithesis of cool. Is that you think a fair assessment, or is there more nuance to it than that? Uh,
3: well, I mean, one of the things that I I'll answer that and, and I'll respond to your comments in this way. I In reading the Birth and Death of the Cool, I was struck by how strong the gravitational pull was toward thinking of the cool uh, in terms of temperature, right that expresses uh, uh, whether or not conflict is direct, whether or not emotional, uh, response is on the surface and "quote unquote" hot, or whether it's reserved and hidden, cool. And I was struck by how much that imbued the the perspective that the cool was uh, a way of being that gets transposed onto um, a set of values that could be adopted by any group, right? It starts to just mean, this is something I like. This is something that has my interest. And this is something that I think, you know, this is a thing or a cultural product or a person that I think other people like me would like. And so, in in that sense, I, I felt that the conversation kind of, if, if you, if you, if you look at the, the birth and death of the cool as a process of sort of going from uh, a, practice, a social practice and a cultural practice of a small group of people to a social and cultural practice of a huge group of people, then that that's one way of looking at it. And it, and it helps to understand part of why. The cool sort of seems to be fading, or or on its way to extinction. But I also think that it's really important to remember, as, as we we sort of mentioned earlier, that that the cool is part of an ongoing cycle of of uh, cultural and group production, and that uh, you know we we need to kind of think of of the cool as, in my opinion, we need to think of the cool as. a a kind of chemical reaction, right? And it's made up of certain ingredients, and those ingredients are being used, you know, in, in the sense that, like, people make bread all the time, but there might be different ways of making bread, and during different eras, a new way of making bread may come along, and a different type of bread may become popular. And to me, the cool is a particular type of group building and a particular type of group and cultural maintenance and so when i'm i was reading the book i was like i really wanted to him to delve more into the nature of that group as being something more than just um uh, non-confrontational or 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 reserved or ironic or furtive you know because i think that beneath that that set of, of characteristics behavioral characteristics Uh, characteristics of presentations there there was indeed and he does kind of talk about it in the book and he does kind of talk about it in your last conversation but he doesn't really do a good job in my opinion or it wasn't sort of brought to the fore enough that beneath that veneer of cool there is uh there's a lot of hot kind of um readiness for conflict and a lot of tension and a lot of uh, overt and purposeful desire for the new and for transgression and for difference. And so, you know, the way I, the way I kind of, it, it's so uh, to, to me, the birth and death of the cool is about this conflict between the transgressive and the for lack of a better term, sort of the restorative, you know. Uh, and so when I think about whether or not, you know, it, 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 terms, it in terms of like pop culture, in terms of music or whatever, I, I, I tend to think of whether or not we're talking about people who are using this kind of you know he he, joya discusses the birth of the cool and the birth of jazz and all that as being uh uh, derived from african-american culture and sort of need to be indirect and to not be confrontational because of a relatively weak political position right minority status etc and that some of the white people that were attracted to jazz culture also felt like outsiders and, and sort of minorities, you know, the beats, et cetera, artistic, uh, you know, personalities, et cetera. So to me, that's really where the, if you want to really truly grasp kind of the meaning of the cool is is, is as it travels from being a sort of insular group of, of the down the downtrodden and the outsiders and their use of this kind of furtive, uh, vernacular and the valuation that is put on change and on coming up with something that's new and unprecedented in, in, versus you know something that's restorative and sort of more staid that wants to kind of get back to a top down rather than a bottom-up dynamic.
2: And let me jump in. I want to play our first song, which is a pre cool tune, a sentimental song, a barbershop quartet number. The Shannon Quartet was a barbershop quartet. And the song is The Sidewalks of New York. This is a recording from the 1920s where the song was written, I believe, in the 1880s. Down in front of Casey's
1: old Brown wooden School On a summer's evening. We formed a merry group, boys and girls together, we would sing and walk while the guinea played the organ on the sidewalks of New York, east side, west side, all around the
2: town. And that was the Shannon Quartet singing The Sidewalks of New York, which Joy identifies as a definitive pre-cool not cool song, a sentimental tune. And Yuri, you got to something that solved one of the biggest dilemmas I've had since I read this book, which is why does Joya say Bing Crosby isn't cool? Because if you, you know, part of this project, I've interviewed Gary Giddens about Bing Crosby a couple times and really researched Crosby, listened to his music, come kind of to be a fan. And the first thing, the definitive trait of Bing Crosby is he was cool, cool in the sense of calm, unruffled. Easygoing, but still strong but you know the kind of step around conflict or or start a conflict with with a patty cake with bob hope but i think what you're getting at is this underlying resistance to social authority the that's where the anger that any black person in america is almost certain to have unless they're a saint and somebody like james dean or Marlon Brando was just overflowing with as much as they tried to be calm and cool, you know, um, rebel without a cause is pretty much a series of explosions on James Dean's behalf. Marlon Brando's whole acting career is, is that similar thing. And Bing Crosby doesn't have that dynamite inside Crosby for all of his s- musical sim- simpatico with, with Louis Armstrong and big spider and the other jazz heroes of his era he didn't want to overthrow the system. He wasn't angry about anything. He was totally well adjusted. And now now it makes sense. That's why Crosby Crosby's not cool. Whereas somebody like Frank Sinatra, he of the feeble but frequently thrown, you know, right cross, uh, was cool. Is that a fair you think what do you think of that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, what I was trying to, to to, to, get at, I think that's a, a nice, succinct way of kind of, uh, of pointing out in, in terms of, of uh, pop icons, let's say, the difference between somebody who's, who's, who's truly got the pool and somebody who is simply laid back and popular and, uh, and, and, and producing something that seems calm, you know, and, You know that's the difference between sentimentality, which is you know things are all right and in in this you know the warm feelings that one has inside for the past and all that, with you know smoldering kind of low key expressions, you know which is much more what you're going to get out of the meld of uh, uh, musical uh, musical influences that led to jazz, you know blues, etc.
2: Absolutely. And one thing that you brought up in our discussions before we did the show, uh, I thought was really a really great question, and, and now I'm going to make you answer it. What's the difference between Bro Brommel-style dandyism and modern cool, which, you know, Beau Brommel, I think, 18, early 18th, first half of the 19th century? Yeah,
3: yeah, first half of the 19th century.
2: Just over-the-top dandyism. Um, and then, you know, in the late Half of the 19th century, you've got somebody like Oscar Wilde who who builds on that tradition of dandyism and adds all kinds of undercurrents of irony and sexuality. What's different about those guys and, you know, James Dean or Bick Spiderbeck or Miles Davis, the cool? Well,
3: and, and so that's – a, I mean bringing up Oscar Wilde I think is is a great – addition to the question and to the sort of parameters of it, and really helps to, to bring it into focus. Because I think that dandyism, you know, is something that it it, it continues on today. I mean, you, you have dandies, you know, you had dandies in the, in the 1960s, et cetera. And, and again, I think that one of the, the important things to think about here when we're thinking about what constitutes the cool, what is the meaning of the cool, what might we lose with the extinction of the cool, is that, you know, essentially the Beau Brummels of the world and the dandyism of the, the early 19th century was top down. And Beau Brummel is, uh, you know, he's a confidant of, of the, the prince regent king. And his influence stems in part from his connection with that top down source of power. It, it comes with some of the trappings of what you might think of being as the cool, you know, uh, sort of ironic nonchalance, uh, a great deal of um, attention paid to the aspects of, of culture and group building that stem from fashion from, you know, sort of signaling each other with clothes and hair and phraseology, but it's, it's top down and it is, it's, you know, probably more conservative than even restorative, you know, activity. Uh, you, we could argue about that, you know, whether restoration or uh, 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 simply coming into power is, is I, I suppose restoration is, is, is more obviously conservative. But at any rate, uh, Oscar Wilde is a sort of dandyish type personality, but he's a much more sort of uh, uh, transgressive. Example of the same kinds of, of of cultural activity and production, and so you know the difference between the cool and 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 uh, classic iterations of, of dandyism from the Bro, bo Bromo period is, is what I would say is is you know one is top down and one is bottom up, and and so one is is an iteration of the practices and weapons of the powerful and one is an iteration of the practices and, and weapons of the, the weak and, the, and those who are seeking to re- resist domination
2: and where do you put wild on that spectrum obviously he was homosexual was sentenced to prison for it but he was also in some ways at the apex of the culture very famous very popular writer right why doesn't cool start with oscar wilde
3: well, I wouldn't say that the cool started with Oscar Wilde. I would just say that, it, that Oscar Wilde is an interesting uh, sort of example of dandyism because it demonstrates that it sort of changes over time, you know, and yeah. that the the kind of, you know, Oscar Wilde was popular, but he didn't have access and wasn't, you know, sort of rooted in the kind of power and, uh, uh, you know, influential uh, platform that, that Bo Brummel had. And then, you know, of course, I mean, I'm I'm not some sort of historian that is, is deeply steeped in in information about, you know, the, the, the Bo Brummel experience, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, my, my recollection of Bo Brummel is that he did not have a very, a very good ending. You know, I think he, he died in penury and madness. So these, you know, these are things that they do cycle out, they do change over time. But I think that, that the, 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 the cultural font, right, that is connected with the birth of the cool is a cultural font that uh, is rooted in this kind of bottom-up resistance, transgression, a love of change and difference, and, and progress, you know, it's very modern, you know, the kind of cool that we're talking about when we're, when we're looking, even if you, even if you think of, of the cool as having started in the in the early twenties or, 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 you know, in the jazz era, you know, I mean, that's where you have the Harlem Renaissance and, 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 you know, it's coming right out of the progressive era. So you're, you're talking about uh, a, a set of attitudes that are very, open toward change and toward using power to to uh, to help forward change especially in the sort of Rooseveltian tradition so I, I think that that's kind of that's the kind of conversation that I felt was kind of missing from the book it, it might just be because he's concentrating you know on the sort of pop culture aspect of it which of course ends up being consumed By its own success and by its own, you know, once you turn over the cool to the not just the flow of history, but to the flow of commerce, it it turns in, then it starts to turn into a different sort of conversation.
2: The party's over at that point. Let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is from um, the Fritz Freeland cartoon, classic Warner Brothers cartoon, The Three Little Bops voiced by Stan Freeberg and the music is by Shorty Rogers. The Three Little Bops. You gotta play hot to get real cool.
3: Well, the piano playing pig was swinging like a gate, doing Liberace on 88.
2: I wish my brother George was here.
0: the hall the big bad wolf he learned the rule you gotta get hot to play real cool
2: now with stan freeberg and shorty god damn it i'm forgetting i working for fritz freeling shorty rogers apologies um working for Fritz Freeling on the classic Warner Brothers cartoon, The Three Little Bops. And this whole aspect of Bugs Bunny that he brought into the book is something that I stuck to the music aspect of it when I talked to Ted before, so I didn't get to ask him about Bugs Bunny. But I think Bugs Bunny is definitively cool and um, a pretty perfect icon to talk about and also explain some of why cool took over with the baby boomers more so than it did with the preceding generations because they got this stuff early Or propagandized with it early. And I also think that Joya really fixated on the term cool, meaning oppositional figure with appeal, Um, and that those figures have existed throughout history, but they were not called cool. Like he says, cool was associated – when it was used at all to describe people, it was either people who are just cold and and unfeeling, and then it became – Sort of a term for sociopath, I mean, like cool as a cucumber, or um, I can think of a a song lyric, uh, cool as a salamander, referring to, which is funny since a salamander is notoriously a fire demon, but cool as a salamander.
3: (laughs) It's also also a term for murder, you know, cool somebody.
2: Exactly. And that's what the guy I'm cool as a salamander and I'm, I'm about to pull my blunder gun and, and do you in. So, you know, it's more like a Pablo Escobar type figure that can absolutely keep his head and and fire straight and and methodically in the middle of this chaotic situation when everybody's running around. So I think that's one thing. But I do think that there are specific traits to this 20th century thing that we call the cool That are unique to the 20th century, but this broader tradition of oppositionalism and not just oppositionalism that people in the in-group don't like, but oppositionalism that is attractive to people in the in-group. And so another question you had that I got to ask you is, was Huck Finn cool? We're talking about Mark Twain's character, Huckleberry Finn. Was he? I mean,
3: so you've just... You just mentioned several different iterations of cool that I think kind of come together really well uh, to uh, discuss this question of, of you know the popularity and, and the attractiveness of of oppositional figures and uh, uh, 20th century cool Bugs Bunny, Huck Finn, and 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 this cartoon the Three Little Bots. Right. That's also a Warner Brothers production. Doesn't involve Bugs Bunny. And I, I and bringing on, on getting us to Huck Finn, who's obviously a, a fictional character who's set in a period that is, you know, a, a full couple of generations before uh the, the birth of the cool. And so I, I think if you look at the if you look at the three little bops, the reason I think the three little bops is an interesting a sort of expression of of what the cool is about is you have these it's, it's you know the story of of the three little pigs who are who are characterized as being sort of jazz slash rock musicians and the big bad wolf is trying to gain entrance into their acceptance he wants to play with them etc and they have their own insular kind of understanding of what is cool what's acceptable what and, and it has to do with with transgression in in, in the new it has to, It's a new thing that they're they're expressing and they're and they're developing so when the big the big bad wolf shows up he they allow him to play but when he plays he, he quote unquote blows corn you know he plays this <laughs> you know he's he's incompetent in the cartoon but they call it corny because he shows up with a ukulele at one point and a and a and uh, you know, dancing to Charleston and wearing a fur coat, he's out of time. He's behind the times. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And he, there's a conflict that's going on because be, when he's rejected by them, he wants to destroy them. Right? He wants to blow down the house. And so they they they're continually having to find new places where they can do their thing. And eventually, the violence of the of the wolf consumes him, and he kills himself with. With some dynamite or what have you and goes to hell and in hell he, he, he learns to I guess rid himself of all of the trappings of sentimentalism and backwards thinking etc and instead a sort of a fusion from his spirit comes out that blows hot and allows him to play jazz in the way that the, the three little pigs are playing and so they play together, even though he's in hell and they're still here you know on, on, in the cartoon world, they play together and, and there's this sort of synthesis, right this, this, this event where the uncool becomes cool. And the suggestion is is that the cool is a certain iteration and a certain comfort with change and difference and in a a sort of aplomb with that and and, and valuing change and valuing the new. And that you have to be ready to go to hell and stay cool in hell in order to, you know, and to be rejected, right? And, and socially exiled to hell in order to really get what's going on. Of course, the three little pigs are playing in these clubs with nothing but white people dancing in this kind of frantic cartoon manner. But that's sort of the, the subtext of that. And if you look at the character of Huck Finn, who's a humorous character and he's rustic and he is filled with all sorts of contradictory, you know, character traits. And, 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 and it's a, it's a book that's in many ways humorous, right? I mean, he starts one of the, one of your introductions to Huck Finn is he's, he's a, uh, He's having the Bible read to him by, you know, this old woman who's trying to inculcate him into the staid and safe culture of of Judeo-Christian America. And he he basically says that he's in a big hurry and a big panic to learn more about this and Moses and the bulrushes, which is, you know, when Moses is found in the reeds by the river. And he then finds out. You know, that he doesn't care so much anymore because eventually he learns that Moses has been dead a considerable long time, and he don't take no stock in dead people. <laughs> and this sets up this character that he is going forward. He's not going to be held back by uh, the Moors and, and the strictures of, you know, conservative or mainstream society, however you want to put it. You know, he's on his own. He's out there. He's this— sort of counter character right and so while that's a that's a humorous introduction to him it turns out that that's really the centerpiece of the book and the moral center of this great piece of american literature is that there's a moses like aspect to you know at least he thinks of himself as being in that situation from that standpoint or from that perspective when it comes time to decide whether or not he's gonna, you know, submit to the Moors of the South and return his friend Jim to slavery or not. And he decides that even though he understands it's absolutely against everything he's ever been taught is right, he's gonna to go to hell instead. And he's going to take this transgressive, you know, movement by helping to and, and you know, he's the trickster, he's gonna do all of these crazy machinations to help keep his friend free. But that's, that's the core of it. And so in that sense, to me, Huck Finn is this very Bugs Bunny-like, very cool character who is also transgressive and comfortable with the new and don't take no stock in dead people.
2: <laughs> and I think you're right. And let's hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about another cartoon iteration of the cool known as Snoopy.
1: Mobile
2: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.
0: Next up for lead guitar. You're in
1: cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See capital1.com/bank for
2: details. Capital One NA and member FDIC. And so now that we've established that Huck Finn was cool in the late 1800s fictional character though, so kind of a profit of the big spiderwebs and others. And I think you're onto it that this willingness to go against society when you think society is doing the wrong thing, that's what steals somebody's heart to be cool because you got to be alienated from the dominant culture. And then once cool becomes the dominant culture, creates this contradiction where you can't be, you really can't be cool and be part of the dominant structure. And so once every consumer product on earth is trying to be cool, That's the definition of uncool. But another thing I didn't talk about with Ted when when we talked about the book, so I was sticking to the music, was his analysis of the Peanuts gang. And there is a musical hook because of the legendary Charlie Brown Christmas special with the Vince Guaraldi trio providing the excellent music, which is cool jazz. And Joy spends quite a bit of time discussing this contradiction or seeming contradiction at the heart of cool jazz, which was – Something that was introduced to jazz by Bix Beiderbecke, a white cornet player who came along in the late 20s just hot on the heels of Louis Armstrong. I mean, jazz has been going on in New Orleans for maybe 20 years at this point, but it's just going national as people like Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet travel the world and play places like New York and London and Chicago. And Beiderbeck's one of a school of kids who saw Louis Armstrong pretty early on in Chicago and becomes you know, a convert to this jazz ideology and gospel and music and introduces, though, this melancholy, pensive, melodic aspect to jazz that seems to go against the very definition of what jazz was, which was hot dance music. It's so hard for people now. We have so many layers of meaning ascribed to jazz as this art music. Cool jazz and Miles Davis is obviously a big you know miles davis has become kind of the icon of jazz and the modern consciousness and he's one of the definitive cool jazz players there's a tradition that joy lines out from big spiderbeck then to lester young who came out of kansas city with count basie and goes on to play with billy Holiday and others and had this very oppositional style he played mellow and, and smooth and pretty but in a hot swinging context and then miles davis was able to kind of bring those influences together. What do you make of this contradiction that's inherent to cool jazz, and how does it relate to the overall cool project?
3: Well, I, and, and I agree. I, I think that Ted did a really excellent job of of pointing out how uh, the 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 sort of emotional content of cool jazz builds up the peanuts. I think that when you listen to Especially the 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 piano piece that Peter Beck did uh, um, the the solo piece, and I can't remember what it's called right now. I'm yeah, sorry. I
2: can look it up real quick.
3: But um, that's a very very complicated and colorful and emotionally robust piece of music, and I think that in the same way that you know the surface presentation of
2: the James Dean uh In a Mist the, the song is In a Mist by Beck Spiderbeck so forgive me for yeah a
3: In a Mist it's 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 really wonderful and forward looking and and sort of um you know sort of unprecedented as far as I'm aware the the use of tempo changes and these rich chords it's very experimental you can you can hear him fe- you know sort of feeling his way through chord changes and through the presentation of of, of of chord changes as a way of expressing very complicated inner world type uh, uh, considerations, you know. And I think that that's, you know, cool jazz it carries with it these chords that bring to mind a complicated inner world and an, and an inner world that could be at con- in conflict with, the external world, uh, despite, uh, a, 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 an outward appearance of calm or weakness or what have you. And I think that it's for that reason that, that Charles Schultz and, and Vince Guaraldi's uh, choice of, of, uh, cool jazz as a soundtrack for the peanuts is so profoundly successful and, and remains touching to this day. Is that you know if, if you think of the peanuts as a group of characters that are all children, I think they were originally called little folks or something like that. It's it, you know Schultz presents them as kind of like little adults, and in their world, they have very complicated ideas and very complicated observations about a world outside of their insular group, outside of their 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 childhood antics and their considerations of the sort of meaning that their their activities have within the world and and the meaning that the world has for their their lives Uh, outside of their world is this practically incomprehensible right this incomprehensible uh uh, reality
2: literally incomprehensible they can't understand what the adults are saying
3: exactly it's like this it's this it's this divide between the youth who are a who are a, a group that are relatively powerless and beset by commercialism and beset by insecurities and beset by new notions of psychology and all of this sort of thing right and it, as soon as they interact with adults they go back to being just children and compliant you know, every single time they interact with an adult, the adult is saying something that is is verbally incomprehensive and the kids are, oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, this is what happened. And then when they go back to being with each other, you're in their world again. And this is this is very much what I mean by, uh, you know, group building and culture building and maintenance through uh through cultural activities like clothes and, and phraseology and hairdos and musical choice, you know, musical taste and your taste in film and, you know, who you think is a, is a cool artist and all this kind of stuff that constitutes the building of a, of a subculture. And the peanuts is a very interesting presentation of that. And the use of cool jazz is central because it, it lets you know that these kids in their actions are involved with sophisticated ideas and and feelings and complicated circumstances. And I think that's central to the cool. I think that's absolutely central to the idea of the cool is being comfortable with and conversant with and engaged with change, transgression, et cetera, with some sort of aplomb. And that the culture is built around that And, and being of that culture it, it is is central to this inner sophistication and this inner complexity
2: and let's hear a song about a character that Joya didn't talk about that's part of the peanuts crew and this is Vince Guaraldi's interpretation of Joe Cool that was the Vince Guaraldi trios, Joe Cool. And I'm glad you brought this up because it made me have a flashback to the first time I read the book where throughout the Peanuts chapter, I was eagerly awaiting the discussion of Joe Cool, which is a a persona that Snoopy took on, much as he took on the persona of a fighter pilot or other things. Um, But Joya ducks the Joe Cool question. What do you make of that? I, you know, I I don't I don't know. I was surprised
3: myself that he didn't jump right on it. Maybe he didn't bring Joe Cool into the discussion because he kind of touches on the some of the things that, that arise by considering Joe Cool in other aspects of his treatment. Uh, and he also might have thought that it was just too obvious or, or maybe he wasn't that familiar with the peanuts and didn't know that there was this Joe Cool character. Um, I, I think that the Joe Cool character is very interesting because it does sort of take us toward the end of the cycle. You know, I mean, Snoopy is a kind of Bugs Bunny-like character, and Joya points this out. He's, you know, he's, he's an animal that acts like a human in many instances. He walks upright. He is a sort of moral arbiter. He uh, uh, imposes order on chaos or brings chaos into order. He's a very mercurial character, and you know the the character Joe Cool comes up much later in the in the run of the um, of the TV specials, and it's a sort of generic iteration, right? I mean, the music sounds kind of seventies hippy dippy, you know. I accept everybody; we're all laid back. Joe Cool, you know, is this character that's presented as being accepting of others and kind of unruffled, et cetera. And so it has that classic iteration of the cool is is, is being kind of balanced and, and and not explosive and hot, so to speak. But it's also very sort of generic. He's Joe cool, you know it's it's this very safe slogan by the time they 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 bring you know, Joe cool into the situation and all it is, is, is him with the slogan, Joe cool on a shirt with some sunglasses, which is this kind of classic representation of cool as furtive as you can't really see what's going on behind the face of this person. You can't read their eyes, but you know something much more complex is going on beneath the surface. It makes them mysterious and interesting. And, but it's, it's so cheap and easy you know, and I and I'm surprised that he didn't get to that because he at that point in the book, uh, that's exactly where he was headed. Is discussing kind of this fin club, cool, yeah, and it's and it's coming extinction.
2: This faux cool, and I think it's telling that Garaldi was near the end of his run and near the end of his life, and his music, which was so cool and shocking in the early '60s. I mean, musically, it was 10, 12, 15 years behind. It was no longer an absolute cutting edge, but it was quite cutting edge for mainstream broadcast television of the time of the first special. And CBS. Yeah. And, and, and the network executives are extremely dubious about it. But because Charles Schultz was Charles Schultz and Peanuts was Peanuts, he was able to push it through. And then the show was such a huge hit that by the time you get to the fourth or fifth iteration, Vince Guaraldi is just part of the success formula and is no longer any kind of transgressive thing and yeah that's where these things it's, it's a precursor of things like Bill Clinton going on the Arsenio Hall show and playing the saxophone with his sunglasses on or Tom Cruise in Risky Business stripping down to you know a button up shirt and his underwear to lip sync to Bob Seeger, whichever Bob Seeger song it is it's still rock and roll to me or I can't tell my Billy Joel from Bob Seeger <laughs> forgive right. me right <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an, an unintended slip of my personal preferences there. But one of those, let's get back to the old rock and roll song. So talk about Risky Business because you s- zero in on that. It's sort of like I, – and I think it is like the moment when cool is no longer cool because it's so popular and so accepted.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Joy brings up Risky Business. He doesn't dwell on it a great deal, but he – He does bring it up in order to discuss um, a different iteration of the cool, which is a group of people who think that uh, the idea of becoming wealthy and powerful is, is an iteration of what is cool, which to me marks a moment when the cool is overcome by its antithesis. Right. So while Tom Cruise's Joel character has his sunglasses on and he's listening to, you know, Bob Seeger play his blue collar rock and roll, he's in this, you know, well to do suburban home left to his own devices by his parents. And he kind of ventures out into the underground uh, via the phone to find a prostitute right? He's going to have some sort of sexual dalliance and maybe lose his cherry to a prostitute, this transactional kind of event, instead of one that is filled with the trepidation of, of vulnerability and you know lack of experience, etc. He's just going to order sex like a pizza. And the person that shows up is this black transvestite, which instead of Leading to a story that takes Joel into the world that a black transvestite would come from. That person is simply sent away, and instead we get a blonde, blue-eyed prostitute who the the transvestite understands is exactly what this white bread person wants. And when the underground comes behind that in the form of the pimp, you know Guido the pimp, uh, it's. It's not a story of transgression. It's not a story of ruffling the mainstream. It is, in fact, a restorative story. The whole story becomes using prostitution and, and, you know, under the sort of veneer of the prostitutes becoming their own business people without the pimp. In the end, the pimp restores his version of order and he does this by pressuring Joel to restore the suburban order of his home. It's a very restorative version of rock and roll life, of, of teenage, youthful transgression. It's a transgression that leads right back to, uh, to the arms of mom and dad, and Princeton needs a guy like Joel.
2: <laughs> absolutely it's classic reagan era you know restorationism is, is, is the exact right term that's what they were doing they're trying to go back to this imaginary 50s or even 20s you know this idealized vision of mourning in america and while it's tempting to play bob seeger's old-time rock and roll that's the song we were struggling to separate from uh oh, right. in billy joel's it's still rock and roll to me but it's the same idea We don't like New Wave. We don't like funk. We don't like disco. We want old time rock and roll done by a 70s white guy that doesn't sound anything like old time rock and roll. But that's either here or there. But I want to play a different song. This is something that Joy identifies as post-cool. And this is from the late Eva Cassidy, her version of Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Water.
0: small
1: when tears are in your eyes
0: i will try them all I'm on your
2: side and that was Eva Cassidy's version of Bridge Over Troubled Water and Joya, you know, talks about Bridge Over Troubled Water in the context of Simon and Garfunkel, with Simon as the cool figure and Garfunkel as the traditional pre-cool figure, and the singer-songwriter movement as sort of a pre-cool holdover that was still popular in the in the rock cool era. But I picked Eva Cassidy's version, and I could have picked something by Jeff Buckley or Nora Jones, who to me are sort of comparable. But Eva Cassidy's kind of a fascinating figure because he's somebody I was definitely not aware of doing her lifetime and when she first became popular and I went to investigate what is this, I was utterly baffled as to what is the appeal of this? Cause to me, it struck me as kind of weak cover versions of singer songwriters. I already knew she was, you know, doing who knows where the time goes by the Fairport convention, Sandy Denny's classic number, Art Garfunkel uh, owned bridge over trouble water. But Suddenly, at the turn of the millennium, just as you and I were hitting our 30s, there's the stuff coming up under that's alien to everything us Gen X punk rockers thought was cool, and it seems to be popular with younger kids than us. Do you have a take on the whole Eva Cassidy phenomenon, and was that a harbinger of post-cool?
3: Uh, well, it's somebody who thinks that an embrace and a hunger for the new... Is indispensable to the cool. I think that you know when when Joya is trying to get at the death of the cool. One of the central parts of the story is that the cool gets too successful, it gets too broad. And, and the way I would put that is, is that it becomes impossible to maintain sort of any kind of meaningful. Uh, Boundary to the group and and, and into the project and that this is complicated by uh, by technology, which, you know, the digital revolution suddenly creates a circumstance where change over time becomes truncated and compressed and everything is available. So it's very hard to do something that's new. You know, it's very hard to think that what you're doing is new any longer. And so some of the ingredients that go into the recipe of making the cool as a particular sort of iteration of group building and group maintenance and cultural production starts to it the the chemical reaction starts to fail. And I think that you get these kind of weak tea covers and you know within within the world of punk rock, et cetera, it, it, you had a return to art punk and dance punk in the early part of the the new millennium that in many ways was just a a bald iteration of what was previously part of, you know, Simon Reynolds put post-punk as he discussed post-punk is rip it up and start again. And instead this was kind of like put it back together again and retread. Uh, And I think that that's in part because it's just, it got so hard to do things that were truly new, and the desire to, and just the natural course of, of cultural expression and, and cultural production, et cetera. You know, what are you going to do? What how, how does this go? And so, you know, you enter. We've entered a period of time that, in my opinion. I should also say that we're now at the end. In my opinion, you know, we're, we we previously mentioned 50-year cycles or whatever. And I I feel like we're kind of moving towards the end of a 50 or 60-year cycle of of restoration of top-down power, top-down, like, you know, cultural production, and that includes periods where it seemed like it was the heyday of bottom-up kind of of dynamics, but it was because there was a great deal of of open conflict between you know. Uh, the beats and and hippies, et cetera, and and the silent majority and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, we had all these revolutions. Sorry to interrupt, but we had all these revolutions, like the beats, the hippies, hip-hop, punk rock. And at the end of the day, they all seemed to settle on the message of do your own thing and look out for number one, which was the exact message that the powers that be were were sending us. So, you know, this...
3: Go ahead. It's it's just, yeah, I mean, it, it, it becomes... In every instance, commercialism grabs hold of it and begins to, and to market it and, and, to, and to take the culture into all sorts of nooks and crannies and applications that just water it down. And so you, you have oversaturation and kind of the impossibility of the new. And that's, that removes two important ingredients from what helps to create the cool, you know. And, and so then what you end up having is conversations where, you know, like if you talk to, to artists and in, in, you know, especially musical artists in today's world, they don't want to hear about whether or not what they're doing is new. It used to be people excitedly talked about like the new thing. And, and how they were pushing the boundaries or whatever. But for the most part, my experience has been that musicians don't want to have those conversations because they kind of feel embarrassed for a lack of newness.
2: Yeah, fair and, enough.
3: Go ahead. And I was just going to say, to me that is related to you know, uh, prescriptions on other phraseology that used to be central to uh, the experience of youth and and to the experience of the cool. Which involves things like social justice, and uh, you know, trying to egalitarianism, these types of things. I mean, we live in a world now where, you know, they're passing laws that say you
2: can't discuss
3: transgressive history. You can't even you can't even bring it up.
2: Yeah, it's it it seems to just go on endlessly and endlessly. And you're kind of teasing what I hope is our next conversation, which I want to talk about Simon Reynolds retromania with you. And this idea that the pop past is eating the pop present and future. And I mean, the only thing I have to add to the whole Eva Cassidy, Nora Jones, Jeff Buckley discussion is that in that era, once it was once aggression had gone to the limits of NWA and, you know post-punk post-hardcore punk and had sort of devolved into Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst you know there's this swing to people who just want to sincerely express their feelings in music so people like Eva Cassidy that are straight up sentimentalists but are doing it powerfully and and reaching audiences plus you get the whole twee movement with Belle and Sebastian wow. and 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 indie rock you know devolves into like the most harmless and, and toothless genre of music going. So, yeah, a ton of fascinating stuff. And Yuri, uh, it's been fun uh, dissecting the birth and death of the cool and my discussion with Ted Joyo with you. And I, you clarified a couple of things. Now I know why Bing Crosby is not cool despite being cool. So, thanks for coming and hope we can get you back to talk about Retromania next time.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: All right. And the book we were discussing was The Birth and Death of the Cool by Ted Joya. And my guest was Dr. Yuri Campbell, my good friend here from Austin, Texas. And we'll see y'all next time.
0: Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Joel Selvin to discuss his book, Sly and the Family Stone, An Oral History. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcast.com.